Okay, this is the first chapter of recording. I am so excited. I don't know if this is going to work. We're going to see. We're going to start reading. If there were sound effects, it means I screwed up the beginning. But let me start. So, the past couple of weeks in quarantine, I've felt pretty different compared to my normal self, whatever I define that as. And I felt kind of dark and twisty, which isn't a good feeling. And I was curious what I could do to sort of get back to some emotional normalcy. And I was driven by the question, what makes us happy? And how do we stay happy? Okay, brief mistake. So I was specifically applying it to my time in quarantine. But in this process, I realized that all the skills and facts that I'm learning apply to everyday life in or out of quarantine. And that's why I wanted to share them. So with these new ideas in mind, I signed myself up for an online course called The Science of Well-Being. It's taught by a brilliant, charismatic Yale professor named Lori Santos. And through this course, she teaches her students how happiness works, so the psychology and science behind it, and then how to apply these facts to our lives. Just in the first three weeks that I've been taking this course, we've been focusing on a couple of things, the first being happiness misconceptions. Following this, she then explained why our minds have these misconceptions, and then she went into how we can thwart these quite insidious pathways in our brain. So in this podcast, I'm going to be giving you guys a super simple rundown of all the things she has been teaching me in a hopefully understandable and coherent conversation. Never never mind, this isn't a conversation. That implies there are two people. A conversation with myself. (laughs) Okay, take a minute and ask yourself, what are the things that make you happy? If you're like an average human, you might say good grades, money, a good job, a perfect body, and awesome things like a car or a fancy house. These wishes, these wants, are very common among people, and the thinking goes that if I only had those things, either a perfect body, lots of money, good grades, I'd be happy. As I've learned in the past month, none of these things make us as happy as we think. So let me explain the first facet of this argument. Money. Actually, before I get into money, I'll just put in a little disclaimer. We're going to be talking about life satisfaction and this, quote, general happiness score. These are quantifiable measures for happiness and satisfaction designed by psychologists and scientists. They're trusted. And if I ever talk about life satisfaction, just know that it's a real thing, not some mumbo jumbo that you should ignore. You should also know that Lori Santos, the teacher, has so many different studies to back up all these claims. And I didn't write down every single study. I didn't write down any. Um, And I want you to know that this isn't stuff I'm making up and this is stuff that Lori Santos has taught me and stuff that she has studied. It's real evidence, guys. And I know some of it is more correlational than real causation, but it's psychology. There's a lot of theoretical ideas bouncing around. Okay, if you're like me, if you're like everybody else, you think money is awesome, it'll buy you everything you need to be happy and you'll be more comfortable and satisfied with life if you have a million dollars. But... Lori Santos believes differently. She's taught me that there is a 0.1 correlation between life satisfaction and income. If you know anything about statistics, you know that this is really no correlation. And why is this? Well, a number of studies that Lori Santos and our colleagues have been researching state that once a person's basic needs are met, money has a negligible effect. So if we think back to Maslow, as long as we get that food, that safety, that roof over our heads, some water, maybe maybe even clean air, we're good to go. 
Of course, it's a bit more complex than that, but there is an income threshold where happiness actually levels out. So on this graph where I say that income and life satisfaction have no correlation, we see that there is a correlation up until $75,000 for an annual income. And by that, I mean your as your income is rising from zero to 75,000, you will be happier with your life. So your satisfaction is increasing. But as you hit that $75,000 mark, your happiness is the same no matter whether you're making a million or a hundred thousand. Big stuff, guys. I know. (laughs) And the next topic is stuff. So why do we buy stuff? I personally have way too many pairs of pants and I'm wearing maybe like five of them. So I ask, why do I have so many pairs? And Lori Santos's answer is, why else would we buy stuff if we didn't think it would make us happy? So I guess pants make me happy? No. A study was done by some European person, highly acclaimed psychologist, I don't even remember the name of, and they studied people in the 1940s and then today giving them the same happiness life satisfaction test. Correction, it's probably a group, not just one psychologist. They'd probably be pretty old by now. But in this study, they found that in the 1940s, people were at the same life satisfaction score as us, and they didn't have nearly the same amount of things, let alone the same quality as we do today. And it turns out that the pursuit, the so the longing of all these material goods, actually puts us below our baseline happiness score which isn't great. And psychologists reason that materialist attitudes, so people with an extreme attachment to stuff, have way less life satisfaction than people like Marie Kondo. (laughs) Okay, so moving on to true love. True love, blah, blah, blah. People generally believe that if they are to get married, they will be way happier than either life in a dating relationship or life as a single person. So is this true? Again, no. We see a bump in general happiness scores for people who are married for one to two years. This is called the honeymoon effect. We're aware of this. But after that two-year time from their wedding, they return to the same happiness levels as non-married period people. Um, Next, we have the perfect body. I don't know if I want to focus on this. They sort of skimmed over this one in the course, as with good grades. But again... We really see no correlation between a good body and or weight loss and happiness. As for good grades, they really just don't matter as much as we think they do, and they don't really affect our happiness. So just to summarize the last bit, our goals do not make us as happy as they think they will. There is little to no correlation between having money, awesome stuff, a perfect body, true love, good grades, and being happy. When I was learning this, I was so disappointed. I was like, what the fuck, Lori? Excuse me. Um, I was I was just wondering, why am I learning this? Is just everything in my brain false? Basically, yes. So how do I change this? And the course is kind of cruel because it doesn't offer any immediate solutions right after telling us that everything's wrong about the human mind. First, it explains everything about the human mind. So that's what I'm going to do. Lori Santos describes our happiness problems as four annoying features. So we have these four annoying features in our mind that really screw with happiness and relate to how we think things will make us happy that really don't. The first annoying feature of our mind is that sometimes our mind's intuitions are just wrong. Generally, we believe our minds are normatively correct, but 
that's again wrong. <laughs> Sometimes our mind just delivers things that are factually incorrect. Professor Santos gave a really good example that I liked of using the context, excuse me, using the context of, of our visual system. We're all familiar with optical illusions, and they're just one such scenario when our brain is delivering us information that we believe is correct. We believe so strongly that we're seeing one thing when there's really something different on the page. So that's a part of the reason why we have so many misconceptions. Our minds think that our strongest intuitions are correct when they're often totally wrong. We've just got this little compass in our brain that tells us to like things that aren't going to benefit us. Boo! Fuck the little compass! Okay? The next annoying feature of the mind. And this is that our minds don't think in terms of absolutes. We think in relative reference points. So we judge based on relative terms, aka our salient reference points. And this messes up our judgment about things that we really care about or think we care about. And this delivers a lot of miswanting. So I have a pretty cool example of what I'm talking about. There was a study done of athletes at the Olympics. The researchers wanted to know how athletes reacted differently to different outcomes in races, events, competitions, etc., based on possible reference points. And they did this by analyzing facial expressions, body posture, immediate and long-term expressions of the athletes' reactions when they were getting results. They found that silver medal winners were actually less happy than bronze medal winners, which didn't make sense to me. And the reasoning for this has to do with salient reference points. So for the silver medal winners, they're comparing themselves to the gold winner. So their reference point is the person in front of them, the person who beat them, which is why they're thinking, oh, I could have got that gold medal if I had just gotten one second faster. And they're kind of mad at themselves. They're not as happy as they could be. Whereas bronze medalist winners tend to compare themselves to not having any podium finish at all. Thus, they're happier with their result. So the reference points for individual athletes are just based on how they thought they could have done. Yes, this is a circumstantial example, but nevertheless a cool example of how reference points control how happy we may be. As inherently social creatures, we humans are very prone to social comparison, and we care so much about where we stand in comparison to others. Interestingly, reference points actually have a lot to do with what we're absorbing, and one study found that as a person watches more TV, their estimation of average wealth actually goes up. So watching TV, one is confronted with lots of rich people, the Kardashians, the Real Housewives, Gordon Ramsay, Marie Kondo, whoever you want, and this tends to thwart our perception of real people and produces some really unrealistic references. It's one thing to compare yourself to perhaps a coworker who makes a similar amount of money, but we're often confused by these unrealistic examples in the media. Pretty annoying, right? Like, I want dragons now that Daenerys has them. The third annoying feature of the mind is that our minds are built to get used to stuff. It's this annoying thing called perceptual adaptation. We're familiar with this in our other senses, so our body gets acclimated to certain temperatures. We get used to certain smells. There's another good example of this in the visual system. So when we walk into a dark room, our eyes adjust to the light so we can see better. You got it. <laughs> the same thing applies to hedonics, which is the study of what makes us happy, and we call this hedonic adaptation. So this is becoming accustomed to a positive or negative stimulus, such as the emotional, such that the emotional effects of that stimulus wear off. Fairly often, these things that make us happy stick around, like new car, new job, and you tend to get used to these new circumstances. And 
when I get a new pair of pants, oh, I don't know if I want to say this. Anyways, when I get a new pair of pants, the thrill of wearing them for the first time is never matched. And after the first two wears, they join the pants graveyard because I'm getting used to this new reference point. Bad example. Anyways, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but reference points totally apply to yourself. Not only do we compare ourselves to others, but we also have a tendency to compare to our past self. And the sad fact of the matter is that wonderful things tend to wane with repetition. And the last annoying feature of our mind is very related to this past one. And it's just that we don't realize that our mind is getting used to this stuff. We have serious impact bias as humans. We have a crazy tendency to overestimate the emotional impact of an event, whether that may be intensity or duration, when the opposite is true. We really just get used to stuff. For example, we think that getting a good grade is going to make us so unbelievably happy while getting a bad grade will devastate us. Um, It's also true that we have more impact bias for negative things. We tend to think bad things happening to us will impact us way more than they really do in comparison to the way positive stimuli will impact us. Part of that is due to focalism. Turns out we have another tendency, (laughs) which is to focus on that one bad thing that happens to us and then believing that it will affect us in every facet of our lives. We think that if we get a bad grade, then we're going to fail the class, not pass junior year, not get into a good college, then become poor, homeless, and then unhappy for the rest of our lives. And this isn't true. So to change this evil pathway in our brain, Lori Santos suggests that we try to think of the other things happening in our lives so that focalism doesn't take hold. If you get a new job, there will still be rainy days. You might still have a breakup. It's not going to be all happiness once you get this job, and the same works in the opposite direction. Okay, I just deleted part of my podcast. That's not fun. I'm going to resume. So the last related thought I have is about immune neglect. So we have this unawareness of our tendency to adapt and cope with negative effects. So basically, we're way more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. Go humans, and we're going to rise up just like the pop song tells us to. And life will continue basically proving that focalism is BS, and we really just get used to good and bad things, and we're quite good at getting used to them. Okay, now we're going to get into some concrete and intentional strategies to overcome these cognitive biases. Lori Santos focuses on getting over getting used to stuff, thwarting hedonic adaptation, and resetting reference points, all as mechanisms for overcoming our mind's biases. As you all know by now, we adapt to the things that are consistent in our life, and the worst culprit is the stuff that we buy because those are the things that tend to stick around. The way to not get used to these things that we buy is just to not invest in stuff in the first place because we've learned it doesn't make us as happy as we think it will. Instead of investing in material things, Lori Santos suggests investing in experiences like going on a trip, go to the art gallery, go to a concert, even just going out to a restaurant. Experiences are awesome because they cannot stick around, meaning we cannot adapt to them. Another great thing about investing in experiences instead of material things is that the anticipation of an experience also contributes to our general happiness, and we are not nearly as excited and happy when purchasing material things. Summary, because we have no hedonic adaptation for experiences, they make us happier than stuff does. The next four strategies... hmm. Yes, the next four strategies focus on thwarting hedonic adaptation so that we can still be made happy by things even as time goes by. 
Savoring is the first strategy. It is the act of stepping outside of an experience to review and appreciate it. It is being mindful while having having an experience so you can focus on it and enjoy it. Professor Santos suggests a couple of activities that enhance savoring, which are really just more like thoughts to have while savoring. They include talking to someone about how good you felt while having the experience, looking for people to share it with, thinking about how lucky you are while having the experience, thinking about sharing it with others, and thinking about how proud you are to be having this experience. Alternately, there are things that can hurt savoring. Excuse me. Thoughts that can reduce happiness, and these include focusing on the future, reminding of your reminding yourself that the experience will be over soon, thinking that it is not as good as you hoped, and reminding yourself that it doesn't get better than this. Not entirely sure why I shared those. It's yes, it's it's important to know that generally it increases your happiness not to be focused on the future. Stay in the present, guys. There's another form of savoring that is relatively controversial, and this is taking photos of your experiences. This can be good in that the phone can be a lens in which you see the experience in a different way and you appreciate it, but if you're focused on the phone and the pictures and not the experience, then you get into the reducing happiness realm. The last savoring technique is to think of your past memories. Professor Santos suggests spending eight minutes, three days a week, only 24 minutes, guys, replaying some of your happiest memories because it turns out this process of re-experiencing and focusing on happy memories has a very powerful impact on us. The second thwarting hedonic adaptation technique is negative visualization. And this task is to think about the worst that could happen. This sounds kind of counterintuitive, but in, it, it encourages you to be thankful for what you do have. And it breaks you out of your adaptation so that you can realize the stimulus so that you can be appreciative of it. Similar to this technique is the third, which is called making this day your last. And by that, I don't mean you have a terminal illness that's going to kill you tomorrow. It's imagining that you're going to lose something that you love, as if the good situation were to end suddenly. The example that the Yale professor uses is graduating from Yale suddenly, or not having a sports season. As painful as this experience has potential to be, this process actually helps us pay attention to the things we do not want to lose, which is just another form of encouraging appreciation for the things that we do have. And the fourth technique is gratitude. We're all familiar with that term, and I don't think I really need to get into the details, but I encourage you all to write down five things that you're grateful for every day. It can be big or small, whatever comes to mind. And it's actually pretty cool how much gratitude affects people who actually write down their experiences. Research has proven that people who use gratitude journals regularly exercise more than people who do not. So, you know, that's that's pretty cool. Health for the mind and the body. Um, and you can also increase your work ethic, ethic for school or for your job just by writing down five simple things. So, good benefits. The last and final category of strategies to overcome cognitive biases is resetting reference points. Reference points are the salient yet relevant standards that we compare things with. It also happens that we don't pick those reference points, which tends to really screw with our judgments. 
Um, in this category in the course, there are actually five tips, but for the sake of time and patience, I'm going to pick my favorite three. Okay. So the first I'm choosing is titled Avoiding Social Comparisons. This strategy focuses specifically on media intake. Professor Santos suggests that when we catch ourselves comparing, we say stop out loud. I thought this was a kind of weird suggestion because I don't want to be the weirdo talking to herself while Snapchatting people, but hey, happiness is on the line. You got to do what you got to do. And she also recommends going back to gratitude to avoid social comparison. You can't be grateful while being envious or rather you can't actively experience those emotions at the same time. So if you're being grateful, then you can't be jealous. Wow. <laughs> she also suggests being conscious of the social comparisons you're making. So if you're paying attention to the Instagram models on your feed that are way too skinny for average health standards, tailor your feed so that you're experiencing less of these negative, unrealistic comparisons. Lastly, this one's a bit far-fetched, and I don't expect many people to do this. I don't know if I'd be able to do this. Lori Santos suggests that we get rid of social media. You've definitely heard your parents say this, and I think it's totally valid given how often people are on social media and thus how much it influences their lives. But to be quite honest, I really don't think now is the time to limit yourself. Being in quarantine is super weird, and we're lacking in-person social connection, so I believe you surely shouldn't limit virtual connection if that's as good as it's going to get right now. The next strategy I've chosen for resetting reference points is to interrupt consumption. We notoriously want the good things in our life to continue. Makes sense, right? But if we can force ourselves to stop them and then come back later, we're resetting a positive reference point. So if you're like me and you watch two seasons of Game of Thrones back-to-back, -back, not really stopping to do anything else, then you're getting used to watching Game of Thrones and it feels like you're living in their universe, which is bad, but like also kind of fun. Instead of this, what I should really be doing is stopping every once in a while so I can come back to Game of Thrones and reboost and get this reboost that allows me to overcome hedonic adaptation so I'm no longer adapted to the Westeros world. And part of this that I thought was really interesting was whether or not commercials make us like TV more or less. Nowadays, we have Netflix, and, you know, that's kind of spoiling us. We don't have those annoying Zelljams and Claritin drug commercials interrupting us. But multiple studies compared people watching the same TV show with and without commercials, and the testing group who liked the show more and were happier during the experience was the group who watched with commercials. I believe this, but I just really don't like commercials. I don't need to hear about Claritin. The last strategy for resetting reference points is to increase variety. So if I'm eating the same purple cow ice cream from Lickety Split five days in a row, by the fifth day, I'm very adapted to that ice cream and I am used to it in a way that doesn't allow me to enjoy it as much as I did on that first day. So this tip, this strategy is really as simple as eating mud pie and burnt sugar and butter every once in a while. It turns out that if there is less variation in our in our routines, in our daily routines, the more adaptation there is and the more bo boring our reference points become and no one wants a boring life. Mm, oh, haha. -ha. 
Also, returning back to our ideas on experiences versus stuff, stuff doesn't have variety, whereas experiences are dynamic and changing. So there, we're built to like them more. Voila, full circle, sort of. Um, th- those are all the strategies that I've chosen. Um, they seem pretty straightforward, but it's important to keep in mind that you really have to work actively on these things. I've tried a few of them because they're way of thinking that are unnatural for the human brain. So it takes effort, but it pays off. And that's basically everything I've learned so far or anything that I thought to write down. But I recommend the course if any of this is interesting to you and you want to learn more. Thank you for listening. Okay, never mind. I'm not leaving yet. I have a couple of tips that I wrote down during this course that I thought would be relevant right now just during quarantine. The first being that right now all of our relationships are kind of different, definitely different, and some people might be experiencing tension either within their household or with people they have to communicate with only over the phone. Big tip for reducing these tensions is the idea that relationship success has so much to do with our expectations for the relationship. And if we remind ourselves to be compassionate right now and forgiving, the relationship will be stronger and ultimately more successful and hopefully happier. Uh, another tip, humans tend to feel less anxious when they have a routine. Don't let it get boring. Um, but setting up a schedule for yourself the day before seriously helps with productivity and feelings of accomplishment and stress, that stuff. I also think there's a lot of power in ritual right now. So controlling things probably feels very good because the world feels out of control. Take advantage of that ability. I also highly recommend exposing yourself to good things in the world. It feels like there's only doom and gloom because the news is overwhelmingly focused on COVID-19, as it should be, but feel free to seriously look into better things that are either happening right now or were happening before quarantine. Right now, I also think it's a very good time to form fresh starts. When you're at home in a relatively static environment, it's easy to introduce new habits, whether that may be diet, hydration, sleeping, schedules, gratitude journal, I don't know. Um, And the last thing I wanted to say is that your feelings right now are totally valid. However you're feeling, this is affecting each and every one of us differently, and it's really a unique experience. It's okay to feel how you're feeling, whether that may be happy for no school or sad and lonely because you can't see your friends. Either way, it's valid. Thank you for listening. Stay safe.